Nick, I'm almost done with Gynonk, which is really fortunate because I'm going to be going on to OB. However, I am a little bit nervous about having to teach my junior residents how to ultrasound. Well, did you know that you can head on over to the obgproject.com and with your chief resident skills, get free access to their second trimester ultrasound atlas? If you're a chief resident like Nick and I, you can go on to the OBG project and sign up for OBG First completely free. OBG First is a subscription that allows you to build your very own reading library on the OBG project website, and they also send you up-to-date emails with the latest guidelines and research. All of their content is summarized into easily digestible bites, bulleted information, so that way you can take it on the go, whether you're on your phone, on the wards, or hanging out at home. If you want to find out how to sign up for OBG first, go ahead and go on our website at www.creogsrivercoffee.com. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about counseling patients about elective breech delivery. And I do not claim to be an expert on this. Faye, I don't know about you, if you might be an expert. No, no. I think I've maybe seen one breech extraction in my entire life. So we'll kind of talk about this really from a theoretical perspective. And if your hospital has folks who are familiar with breech deliveries or you're interested in doing breech deliveries, just some things that you could think about for it. Faye, what are we going to call our learning objectives today? So our learning objectives, we are going to talk about how to ID the term breach singleton. We're then going to talk about how we should counsel patients regarding a planned singleton breach vaginal delivery. We're then going to learn the absolute criteria and the relative contraindications to a planned singleton breach delivery. And then we're finally going to talk about the intrapartum management considerations of a singleton vaginal breach delivery. All right, Nick, so let's go ahead and get started. All right, so kind of just some background on this. Singleton breach presentation affects about 3 to 4% of term pregnancies, and the majority of these infants end up being delivered by C-section. There's some series that show like somewhere between 80 and 90% of these babies ultimately get delivered by C-section. Some patients may seek out the opportunity for a trial of breach labor. Um, and so really what this episode today is trying to do is to help counsel patients about, again, breach labor at term. We're not going to talk about preterm babies. We're not going to talk about multiples and doing a breech extraction. Again, this is specific to singleton term breech babies. We really should be trying to avoid the situation if at all possible. ACOG in their committee opinion about breech singleton delivery, as well as in the practice bullet on external cephalic version, recommends that fetal presentation be documented at the 36-week prenatal visit to offer an opportunity for ECV. This will allow for one or potentially multiple attempts at ECV between 37 to 39 weeks. Um, we'll have another episode coming up on external cephalic version and counseling and talking to patients about that, um, so stay tuned. Faye, since we've got our backgrounds now, what do we need to talk about with patients regarding singleton breach delivery? What are the specific counseling points? Yeah, so if you've gotten to this point, so either for some reason the patient did not present for their 36-week visit, they've shown up at the hospital, 
and for some reason they are not a candidate for ECV or they have declined ECV, then their preferences really should be elicited regarding a trial of a breech labor versus a cesarean delivery. As with anything we do in medicine, we should document informed consent, especially regarding the risks and the potential inability to provide a breech delivery um, vaginally due to the lack of a skilled provider. So saying, hey, we've talked about this, we know that this is what you want, but the day that you come into the hospital, there may not be anyone in the hospital who could help you with your delivery. So let's talk a little bit more about kind of the data that we have behind a breach trial of labor. So Nick, can you tell me a little bit more about what has actually been done in terms of studies for this? Yeah, so probably the one that gets pointed to the most, at least in the United States, is the term breach trial. This was a randomized multicenter trial done in 2000 that really randomized patients as cleanly as could be to planned C-section versus planned breach delivery. Um, they noted that perinatal morbidity and mortality was overall reduced with planned cesarean delivery, um, and that was to the tune of 1.6% in the cesarean delivery group versus 5% in the breach delivery group. And there were no differences in reported maternal morbidity or mortality in that study. Now, there have been a number of criticisms of the term breach trial, including protocol violations and such. And one of the criticisms actually is that if you look at follow-up studies to the term breach trial, there have been no noted differences in either maternal or neonatal outcomes at two years. Additional studies that have been performed since the term breach trial have overall been mixed. There are some prospective studies that demonstrate excellent maternal and neonatal outcomes, both in the short and long term, but many of these utilize very strict criteria and protocols for the selections of candidates that are offered a trial of breech labor. Again, these are cohort studies that are done prospectively rather than randomized trials. We'll talk a little bit about what those trials did and why some of these things might be optimized towards a breech delivery later on when we talk about kind of some criteria. Cohort studies, though, in general populations, as opposed to a selected population, demonstrates at least some short-term risk of neonatal morbidity, including birth injury, nerve injury, and the need for assisted ventilation. And this risk is actually present with any trial of breech labor, including if an intrapartum cesarean is performed versus a planned cesarean delivery. So kind of in sum, Patients should really be carefully selected based on some clinical criteria that we're going to talk about. And patients and anyone who wants a trial of breach delivery should be made aware of increased risks of short-term neonatal poor outcomes. Faye, I guess let's move to those criteria then. So what do we need to think about? What should we tell our patients things that might absolutely need to be there versus things that, you know, were kind of considerations, I guess? Basically, in order for you to be able to offer a patient a trial of breach labor, you have to meet a number of criteria. And really, only a minority of patients will meet all of the criteria um, that we are going to list. And in a study with similar selection criteria, only about 30% of women who are counseled about breach births were eligible to have a breach trial of labor. Um, if any of these criteria are absent, um, this should be considered an absolute contraindication and these patients should be strongly counseled regarding having a cesarean section. We're also going to be talking about a few relative contraindications. The absolute criteria are one, gestational age at 36 weeks or greater, and this should be done with good dating criteria. So essentially, patients should be term or near term. 
There should also be no other contraindication to vaginal delivery. So for example, a patient who has vasa previa or placenta previa who have a contraindication to vaginal birth should also not be counseled to have a trial of breech labor. The fetus should also have an ultrasound or estimated fetal weight that is somewhere between 2,000 to 4,000 grams. So not too big and not too small. There are some studies that suggest that these numbers should actually be more limited with regards to fetal weight, and this should be between 2,500 to 3,800 or 2,000 to 3,500 depending on the institution. Other criteria include an ultrasound that shows no hyperextension of the fetal neck and an ultrasound or exam documented presentation as frank or complete breach. No fetal anomalies that may cause dystocia like significant hydrocephalus, ability to use a continuous electronic fetal monitoring, absence of fetal growth restriction or suspected macrosomia, which we talked about before, and of course, availability of hospital staff that is skilled in breach delivery, including the use of piper forceps and emergency maneuvers. So Nick, let's say your patient meets all of these criteria. What are some relative contraindications? Yeah, so again, a lot of these things are based in expert opinion as opposed to scientific data, but some of these more successful prospective trials utilized criteria similar to these. And in the strictest of them, these were some of the other criteria. So some studies exclude women who have had a prior cesarean birth, so they would not allow TOLAC candidates to be part of the trial. Um, though there hasn't been any evidence to necessarily support an increased risk of uterine rupture with a breach trial of labor. Some studies also exclude a need for labor induction. They really want spontaneous labor to define this. They feel like augmented or induced labor just is not quite the same in terms of delivering these babies. The presence of oligohydramnios also has been suggested to be a risk factor or relative contraindication. And then finally, the inability to use or a patient preference against the use of neuraxial analgesia, um, such as an epidural, should also be considered a relative contraindication, really for the purpose of if an emergency maneuver is needed or the use of piper forceps is needed, inadequate anesthesia would be a contraindication to delivery. There are some other things that studies have considered, such as pelvimetry, whether that be clinical, x-ray, or CT pelvimetry, and no study has really demonstrated that it is necessary for offering or is anywhere near predictive at deciding who is successful in a trial of breech labor. Ultimately, though, in spite of these recommendations, we're going to have some patients that may still choose to pursue a trial of breech labor. Um, and one of the things that we would definitely want to convey is that these patients should not be abandoned in this instance. Really, you know, you, we see a lot of people leaving hospitals to try and deliver at home because there aren't skilled obstetric providers in hospitals anymore that deliver breech babies. And so they're trying to do breech deliveries at home, which I think we can all pretty much say is more unsafe than doing a breach delivery in the hospital. So again, you don't want to abandon these patients or marginalize them. You really should frankly discuss the risks and the reason for your recommendation, but a patient choice should be respected and documented in this instance. Faye, there are a couple of things that we should think about intrapartum too. If we do get to the point where, okay, we're in the middle of a breach trial of labor, what are some things that you know might be suggesting that it's not going as well as we'd hoped? Well, so most of the intrapartum management for patients who are trialing labor with a breech baby should proceed according to usual obstetric practice. 
With breach presentations, though, providers should definitely make sure that they are closely monitoring a number of factors. So just remember, these factors are largely based on expert opinion and guidelines from international societies and don't necessarily have randomized controlled trials to back up these suggestions. One is an avoidance of early amniotomy and a preference for spontaneous rupture of membranes. Another is um, the progress of labor in active phase and the progress of descent during active phase. So cesarean delivery should be recommended with a protracted labor course, particularly in active phase, as this may be indicative of fetal pelvic disproportion. So making sure that you're not allowing your patient to be pushing for five hours, for example. Use of oxytocin or pitocin in active phase is discouraged. And also with the achievement of full cervical dilation, uh, the breach should reach the pelvic floor. Passive descent should not be permitted for more than 90 minutes after achieving full cervical dilation. And with onset of active pushing, delivery by C-section should be considered if the infant has not delivered within 30 to 60 minutes. All right, Faye, I think that we've reached the conclusion at least of sort of the start of breach delivery um, and counseling our patients about breach delivery. Why don't we sum it up? Yeah. So um, to start, we said that all patients should have presentation assessment by physical examination and ultrasound between 36 to 37 weeks to offer the opportunity to identify a breech fetus and then also counsel and give the opportunity for an external cephalic version. Again, all patients with breech presentations should really be offered an ECV if they're reasonable candidates based on clinical guidelines. Um, and again, we'll have a future episode dedicated to ECV. If they decline an ECV, you should discuss um, this with your patient, explore that rationale, and document that rationale. For patients who decline ECV or who have an unsuccessful ECV, uh, the patient should be counseled regarding the risks and benefits of planned cesarean delivery versus planned trial of breech labor. You should, again, document um, a detailed informed consent process in either case. If a trial of breech labor is desired, there are a number of criteria that should be met. And again, we reviewed those earlier in the episode, but just quickly, gestational age at 36 weeks or greater, no other contraindication of vaginal birth, an ultrasound or estimated fetal weight on exam, generally between 2,000 to 4,000 grams, an exam or ultrasound that demonstrates presentation as frank or complete breech, ultrasound demonstrating no hyperextension of the fetal neck, Absence of fetal anomalies that can cause dystocia, such as hydrocephalus, the ability to use continuous EFM, the absence of growth restriction or suspected macrosomia, and the availability of hospital staff skilled in breach delivery, including the use of pipers and emergency maneuvers. So again, with absence of any of those should be considered an absolute contraindication to breach delivery. We also talked about a number of relative contraindications. Some women, despite your counseling, may still choose to pursue a trial of breech labor despite a recommendation for cesarean delivery. These patients should be provided the best possible in-hospital care, and these patients should not be abandoned. Finally, intrapartum management should proceed according to usual obstetric practice. However, we identified a number of factors that should be paid attention to during labor progress, both in the active phase and with active pushing. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you liked this episode, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, 
on Instagram at Kriogs Over Coffee, on Facebook at Kriogs Over Coffee. And if you want to donate some money to the show and get a shout out or some cool swag, you can go on to patreon.com slash Kriogs Over Coffee. If you'd like to see the show notes for today's episode or for any of our episodes, head on over to www.kriogsovercoffee.com. If you want to give us some feedback or let us know about an episode that you'd like to hear, go ahead and email us, kriogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Cool.